Good evening. It is good to be back together again to worship God. If you're a guest, thank you for being with us. It does encourage us. If you'd like to be open your Bible to Deuteronomy, the eighth chapter, Deuteronomy, the eighth chapter, in just a moment, uh, we'll study at least the first paragraph out of that beautiful passage in Deuteronomy. Would you do me a favor if several of you, and of course we couldn't get everybody's, but for our, our Monday morning e-messenger, I'd, I'd like to email out a list of 40 or 50 things physically that you're thankful for and 40 or 50 things spiritually that you're thankful for. And so if any of you between now and in the morning would just email me just a few things off of your list, and it's not a, a prioritized list, the most thankful things, but but... If you do that, I'd really appreciate that. And then it'd be a blessing for all of us as we go into this week of, of a great focus as a congregation on gratitude. We can share those things. If you want to email me, uh, probably most of you know our website, which is mountjuliet.org, M-T-J-U-L-I-T.org. Just put david.shannon in front of that. So the email address is david.shannon at mountjuliet.org. And uh, if you'll email that, I'd appreciate that. And it'd be a blessing to everybody else also. Also, keep in your prayers and in mind the Pioneer Conference, not this Saturday, but next Saturday. It's December the 6th. We'll have a panel from those in the congregation here that led in various aspects of the 12 questions campaign. And uh, we have about 30 already that have registered for this where uh, one or two people or three or four are coming in from various congregations that want to learn more about how to do that kind of campaign in their home congregation. We have an elder and, and, and minister flying in from Oklahoma City, another uh, group flying in from Dallas and some from Alabama and just different congregations that have been in touch with us saying we want to learn more about this and so we're bringing that opportunity if you will into one day. And our prayer is that God is is glorified and the thing that we are going to emphasize that day is let's all go back home and do something uh, we've got to reach America I love foreign mission work you know I love foreign mission work but we can't forget the very country and the communities that we live in and uh, we need to be involved, every one of us. We need to be inviting our neighbors. We need to be talking to our coworkers and our friends. Who's going to reach our world that we live in? It's not realistic to ask God to send missionaries from, from Africa or from India or from some of those uh, places like that that now have more Christians in it than America does. It's still not right to ask God to send them to Mount Juliet to edify and encourage and evangelize our neighbors. That's our responsibility. And let's make sure that we're doing everything that we can do. And that, that Pioneer Conference, that's a big part of the motive in that is we are just pleading the case of the Lord. Uh, let's get out and let's live the Great Commission beginning at home. Dementia is a very difficult disease where we lose the mental faculties to be able to go through the normal day-to-day -day activities. There are two areas that dementia is seen most often, 60 to 80% are cases of Alzheimer's, but then also a large number of cases are also vascular diseases, especially that would come out of stroke victims will oftentimes experience either a short-term or long-term dementia. And when we think about the way it manifests itself, it manifests itself most often it's quickly recognized by the impaired memory loss, but also it's in communication. Maybe the ability to not just listen the way you used to listen or to speak and get the words out that you want to get out. And that it also manifests itself in the ability to focus 
and also in the ability to reason and have wise or proper judgment. When we consider dementia in a physical aspect, I guess it goes without saying that any of us that experience it or have those that we love that are experiencing it, if they could do something about it, I would say every one would. Can you imagine voluntarily experiencing physical dementia? I can't imagine that. But now let's think for a moment of spiritual dementia. And think about the fact that so many of us that suffer from that, it is voluntary. We choose to forget God's ways. We choose to not communicate, to not allow Him to talk with us because we keep our scriptures closed and we choose not to talk with Him. And listen, if we don't have God's will in our memory, remember, not forget, if we don't have God's word in our memory, we cannot have righteous reasoning and judgment. And the result of that is going to be a lot of impaired decisions upon our spiritual life. Now, we say that, and then we have to accept this reality. It is so easy to do. I'm talking about the spiritual dementia part. It is so easy to do it. As a matter of fact, if we don't work on it, we are doing it. And so the children of Israel, you remember that, that for 400 years they were over in, in Egypt and then finally leaving there as slaves, God led them out. That's important. That's one of the points we'll see in a minute. He led them out into the wilderness and crossed the wilderness ready to give them their land of freedom, their Canaan's land, their milk that flows, their land that flows with milk and honey. It's going to be a wonderful land for them. And they got over the edge and they sent out the, the spies and, and the spies stayed out there 40 days and they brought back the report and 10 of the individuals had a lack of belief and faith. And so the people followed their disbelief. And so God is going to punish them. And he first he wants to destroy them. And Moses convinces him not to destroy them. And so what God does is he says, I'm going to put them out in the wilderness a year for every day that the spies were sent out. So for 40 years, they're going to be there. And on top of that, all of the adults are going to die along the way. And so when the next generation comes back onto the edge, ready to go over to Canaan's land, the problem now at least that creates the setting of the book of Deuteronomy, is that Moses has been told, you're not going to be allowed to take them over. And that, in one sense, is why we have the book of Deuteronomy written. This is his last plea to them, knowing what the generation before them had done 40 years back, and knowing that he's not going to be there to lead them on into the conquest. And so he gives them reminders of the law. Think about dementia, reminders, forgetfulness, memory. And he's saying to them, don't be like your fathers. They were so close to having their land and they forgot God. And so he's pleading with people he loves to literally live up to a reward on this earth that he isn't even going to be able to experience. Now, definitely, I believe uh, Moses experienced eternal reward, and I think a part of that is seen even in the mountain of transfiguration. But that physical reward on earth that Moses looked forward to seeing, he wasn't even allowed to go over into it. But he writes this beautiful writing. Will you study with me this evening as we look at the beginning of, of Deuteronomy, the eighth chapter? 
In Deuteronomy, the eighth chapter, I'd like for you to notice how the emphasis, and, and it's really throughout the book of Deuteronomy, but especially here we'll note, the emphasis is on obedience. Uh, if you've been here long enough, you know that, that kind of the way I'm wired is there's some things that just leap off the scripture to me and it, and it kind of stays on my mind for a lot of months. And, and you know, it's kind of like when, when you buy a, a, a unique color car and uh, you're thankful that you got a unique color car because nobody else has that color car. And then all of a sudden you drive it home and you realize you meet 10 other cars just like that the first mile out of the dealership. You know, you know how that works. Well, it's the same way when you study things in the word of God. There's things that leap off, off the pages and then you get to noticing it every Everywhere you look. I didn't set out on this journey. It's just a few weeks or months ago. I just started noticing. Obedience and submission is, is pretty much on every page of Scripture. How are we going to have God? And it came out of this study of kingship this year that we're doing and kingdom living. How are we going to say that the Lord is our king if we won't obey him? If we won't obey him, we're just verbalizing something that's not true. If we are not obeying him, intentionally rebelling against what he teaches, he's not our king. The world is our kingdom. And there's a different master or king in the world than the Lord's kingdom where he reigns. How does he reign? He reigns only over those that are willing to submit. Only over those that are willing to obey. Well, that's kind of what Moses is doing here. He's pleading with the people and what he's going to plead all throughout Deuteronomy, but here we'll see in Deuteronomy the eighth chapter, is his plea is we must submit to God. We must obey God in everything. Notice this. Let's look at verse one. Every commandment. Notice the emphasis on complete obedience. <clears throat> Every commandment which I command you today, you must be careful to observe. See the emphasis over and over on obedience? Every commandment. And don't just observe it. Be careful to observe it. You're going to haul around a box of rocks or you're going to haul around some fresh eggs. Which one are you going to have to be careful with? Your spiritual life, do you look at it carelessly like it's a box of rocks? Or do you look at it as something that I must be careful with this? It is valuable. And to God, it is important that I obey him in everything. On Sunday mornings, you and I have been studying in our Bible classes much about the Pharisees because we're studying about the life of Christ and the Pharisees keep making their way into the Gospels, into the life of Christ. Please do not mistake him. The fact for being very careful to obey the law of God for legalism or being Pharisaical. Carefully obeying the will of God has never been discouraged or rebuked in Scripture. Instead, carefully obeying every word of God is highly esteemed. Now, what becomes legalistic in Phariseeism is whenever we take the law of God and we make it more narrow than what God made it, in other words, we change it, or we make it broader than what God made it, but to have someone that says, listen, if God says it, it is of the utmost importance to me to obey everything God says. And there's a lot of people today in America that call themselves Christians and say, well, you're just a, you're, you're a legalistic, you're Pharisee. Brethren, that's, that's Satan whispering. Because Satan lies. And that's what that is. That's lies. You will never, never hear 
read between the lines, directly spoken, ever see God criticizing or undermining complete obedience. Instead, what you will see him doing is esteeming it very, very high. How can I say that he's my king when the reality is I only obey the commands that he gives that I like? And so he gives a command I don't like. I say, well, I don't want to be a Pharisee about it. I don't have to obey all of them. Ultimately, I'm my own king then. All right, so look what he says. Every commandment which I command you today, you must be careful to observe that you may live and multiply, go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to your fathers. You can have that land if you won't do what your fathers did. What did your fathers do? They didn't obey every command God gave them. Now, if you go back over to that edge and you will go into conquest and you obey every command that God gives you, you can live there. You can multiply, in other words, increase. You can thrive there. Moses, are you really telling me it comes down to whether or not I obey the commands of God? That's what it comes down to. That's why your fathers died out here in the wilderness, and that's why you have the opportunity to live in the land of Canaan. It's a matter of obedience. And the New Testament passage, Hebrews, the third chapter, going to the fourth chapter, if you want to study this further as far as application, that is a huge and beautiful study where the Hebrew writer drives home the fact that the only reason that generation missed the Canaan's land was because they did not believe and obey. All right, so let's go now to verse 2 and, and notice who we are to follow. Verse 2, you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness. And now let's, let's think about what he was trying to accomplish, to humble you and test you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So if we're going to allow the Lord to lead us, what kind of followers should we be? We've already spoken of the fact that we're not a follower unless we are submissive to him in everything. But then notice the second thing, he wants to know our heart. He's not just concerned with the outward actions. We've been studying some of that on Sunday mornings also in Bible classes, haven't we? Isn't it amazing that God is just as concerned with your motives as he is with your actions? Now see, physically speaking, we can't always observe and judge that in other people. But we need to judge it in ourselves. And we need to make sure that the reason we're serving God is because we love God with how much of our heart? First and greatest commandment, we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind. And so here, Moses is speaking to the children of Israel, and he says, you've got to obey all the commands, but you start with your heart. Don't be an actor. Don't be a hypocrite. Give God all of your being and allow him to reign in your life and keep those commandments. And so now we go to verse 3. And when we look at verse 3, we see how God worked in their life to humble them. Look at verse 3. So he humbled you. That's an interesting way Moses said it because it was really a tough procedure of humility. Uh, you ever felt like you had a pretty severe punishment? I remember in school... You know, when we walk barefoot in the snow five miles. I'm telling you, back in the day I went to school and the school system I went to, we still lived in the day of severe punishment. 
We lived in the day where the biggest guys in high school would walk out with tears in their eyes, and I'm not exaggerating. I can identify with severe punishment where you can honestly say, I don't think I deserve that. I think that was more than, than, than I deserve. Can you imagine? Lord, what, what did you say our punishment's going to be? 40 years in a wilderness. And if you're an adult, you're going to die there. Let that sink in. God, why would you do that? What, what are we supposed to learn from that kind of punishment? Well, notice what God says. So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger. And see, that's humiliating. I can't take care of myself anymore. I thought I was the one that put food on the table. I thought I was the one that prepared it. And when I ate it, I thought I provided that meal. And now all of a sudden, I can't provide a meal. I'm out in the wilderness, and I realize, you know what? I don't have the ability to take care of myself. If God doesn't first bless me, I don't have the opportunity to take care of myself. When we can reach that point of humility, every one of us realizes that's true, right? We've talked about listing the physical things you're thankful for. You remember what Jesus said to pray for? What kind of bread? Daily bread. Why did Jesus say daily bread? Because he's trying to break it down to this very fact. The only reason you have eaten a meal today is because God has blessed you. If God had not given you that meal today, you would not have eaten today. And so, should we be appreciative of, of the physical blessings? Absolutely we should. And so here, we look and he says, you know one of the ways he humbled you? He just didn't provide for you for a little while. And you got hungry. And you realized in humility, we need help. And then when he gave them bread, he gave them a bread that they never could claim that they were the source of it. He gave them a bread like they had never seen before. They didn't go out and plant wheat and harvest it and grind it up and, and make the bread. He gave them manna. And so the only way they could describe this bread was it was a gift from God. You see the humility that's being worked into their life? So let's read this, verse 3. So he humbled you, he allowed you to be hungry, and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. See, they, they could not claim this bread. They'd never seen it before. Why did he do it that way? That he might make you know, see how it's all knowledge, it's all memory, that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. How important is it for us to be humble? And what is it for us to be humble? Humility is of the highest importance. And what does it mean? It means that we realize we are nothing without God. We wouldn't have, you ever heard somebody say, God, take your next breath? Listen, brethren, God doesn't have to take your next breath. All he has to do is not give you your next breath. We are nothing without every gift from God. We continue reading. Your garments did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these 40 years. So they're out there for 40 years. How are we staying alive out in the wilderness? God's given us bread. Have you noticed something about our clothes? We, we've been out here for 20 years. We've been out here for 30 years. Our clothes look just as good as the day that, that we left Egypt. Isn't that amazing? 
That's amazing on two aspects, isn't it? One, it's amazing that they didn't wear out. And the second is it's amazing they didn't go out of style. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> Any of y'all pull this trick? Sometimes it's a change of season and then I get out my favorite shirt, whatever it might be from last season, and Tracy looks at me. And we've been married long enough now, I know exactly what she is saying without any words. I, I, I used to have to have the words to know, but now I know the words. And, and so she just shakes her head and we have this conversation. I'm like, what? I'm like, but it's still in good shape. It's my favorite shirt. Come on, Trace, just one more year. She's like, it's out of style. That color's not in, those stripes aren't in, that pla whatever it is, you're not wearing it this year. I'd kind of like to be an Israelite. I, if I get a favorite shirt, I'd kind of like to just keep wearing it, but it doesn't work that way in my family. But when, when we look at them, what was happening? The humility was coming from the aspect to say, how is this happening? And the answer every time was God. Where are you getting this water in a wilderness? God. Where are you getting this manna? God. Where are you getting clothes that last 40 years and feet that don't swell? God. I hope we all know this, but this week I want us all to be focusing and praying on this so that we don't slip into spiritual dementia. I want to challenge you this week to look at everything you walk on, you put your hands on, you put into your mouth, everything that, that you hug, everything that is involved in your life. And I want you to constantly remind yourself, if it's good, it's a blessing of God. And we would not have it except God has given it to us. And if we can truly believe that, according to the verses we've just read, you know what we've accomplished? Humility. I'm nothing, I have nothing without God. And so we look at verse 5. And when we look at verse 5, we say, what does it mean? What are, what are the means here ultimately trying to accomplish? And look at verse 5. You should know, this is how God's going to accomplish this. And he's kind of going back now and he's giving the principle of what he's just spoken in details. I know that's a little bit opposite. Usually we speak about the principle and then we speak about the details. He's spoken the details and now he's going down to the principle. Look at verse 5. You should know in your heart, see now we're back to what do you know, what do you remember? That a man chastens his son, so the Lord your God chastens you. Why were they out there in the wilderness? Because God was punishing them. What was it supposed to be accomplished? They were supposed to be humbled. How were they going to do it? They were only going to have things that their answer every time had to be, God did it. And then in that, we have the principle. Why is God doing this? Because God chastens and punishes those that He loves. I know you probably know this passage, but I can't resist as I was writing this lesson. Hold your finger here. We're going to come back and read verse 6 in just a moment to close this lesson. But will you turn with me to Hebrews, the 12th chapter? I want you to see some principles here about God's chastening and punishment. And what I want you to note from this principle is that we make a mistake whenever in our minds we think about punishment and chastening as just one little narrow event in life, and it's just where... The, the, the punishment is administered. And in our mind, we think that's all it is. 
What we see here from Hebrews, the 12th chapter, is that there is a big message and there are some broad principles that come out of accepting God's punishment. And that's our takeaway that I want you, as we study through this, I want you to take this with you. And you may need more than just this time we're studying. You may, you may need to you know, think about this one as you go to bed tonight. Uh, you may need to cut everything off as you drive to work tomorrow. And you need to be thinking about this. I don't know if you've ever thought about this before. If not, I beg you to think about this. What is your response when God punishes you? You know, all children have a response when they're punished. And, and the, the two kind of extremes is one is it's a very positive response and the child accepts the correction and the child learns from the correction and the child does better. And we've also seen children at a certain time, they're punished and they don't accept the correction. They kind of rebel from it and things aren't any better. Well, think about it. God punishes all of us. And his punishment is to humble us to make us better people. But God as he does the right thing toward us, will not live our life for us. And so if we want to rebel against his punishment, we can do that and we can end up just as bad as before he punished us. Or we can accept his punishment in a righteous fashion. And we truly can be people that are richly blessed. And we can pause there and ask why. We're richly blessed. Why? Because God punished us. I hope every one of us can say that tonight. My life has been richly blessed because God has punished me. And I did the right thing with his punishment. How's this punishment work? We don't have time to work through all of the words and phrases here, so I've highlighted some of the high points out of some of these verses. I just want us to know as it pertains to this and as it pertains to the children of Israel and as it pertains to us. The first thing I'd like for you to see is that quote in verse 6 out of the Old Covenant where he says, For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. The first thing that I must grasp about this is that whatever this punishment is, it, is, it, it must be for a good purpose because God only does it because he loves us. And I know when we're children and we're being punished by our parents and they tell us that, it's hard to believe that line, isn't it? But then when you become a parent and you really do, you really are about to punish your child and you tell them, I'm doing this because I love you. As a parent, we get it. We really are trying to help our child. We're wanting them to grow beyond whatever mistakes they're making. And so we truly do punish them because we love them. Friends, it's the same way with the Lord. And so I must accept that to be humiliated by God is not because God's vengeance is out, uh, out of hatred. It's because God's punishment is out of love. All right, let's, let's read on now. He, he's says some beautiful things in 7 and 8 about it. I'd like for us to pick up in verse 9. In verse 9, furthermore, we have human fathers who corrected us. So now we're getting a picture of what punishment and chastisement ought to involve. It involves correction, not just uh, the, the punishment itself, but correction. And we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in what? Subjection, that's the word of obedience. That's submission. That's what we talked about earlier. Should we not more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? In other words, I'd like for you to think right here of some positive things, and over here we're going to list some negative things. The first thing we see is that God loves us. God loves us so much that when we live in, 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 in sin, in a situation that is wrong, God loves us so much, He will correct us. In other words, he's going to say, I am going to steer you back over here 
if you're willing to accept the punishment. Now, if you want to rebel against the punishment, you can take the punishment and keep rebelling. But the purpose of his punishment is to correct. To correct, first, it has to be identified. Hey, what you're doing is sin. And here's how you can change. Here's the path of righteousness. Here's how you can repent and turn and change. And so that, according to the end of verse 9, leads to what? Life. That leads to death. This leads to life. And now let's read the very next verse. For they indeed for a few days chastened us, as it seemed best to them. But he, now he's going to talk about how God chastens. But God, for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. He loves us enough to correct us, to get us away from there, so that we can be here. And if we are over here, it's for what? It's for our profit It's an advantage to us. Why? So that we can be partakers of His holiness. The word partaker is the same idea in the Greek as communion and fellowship. We are sharing in the holiness of God. We are in communion with the holiness of God. But if we stay over here and we refuse to be corrected, we are in fellowship with the world. We are in communion with the world. It is to our profit that we would come over here and live under subjection a God who loves us enough to correct us so that we can share in His holiness. Now, you know, we've studied a lot about the fact that whatever we receive from God, we receive it so then we can be a blessing to give it to others. If we receive this holiness from God, what does that result in the rest of our life. Let's let's look at verse 11 here and then we'll sum this one up in, in Hebrews 12. Notice, now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. So God says, I will allow you to hurt. If that's what it takes for you to be humbled, I'll allow you to hurt. If that's what it takes for you to be moving from this point of correction back over into the point of sharing in my righteousness, he says, I'm willing to allow you to do that so you can grow. Nevertheless, afterwards, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. God's love is so great that he won't allow us to stay over here in sin without punishing us. He punishes us so that we will be corrected, so that we will share in his holiness. When we share in his holiness, it is an advantage to us because now the fruit, that's what our life produces, the fruit of righteousness is then what we can share with other people. And because of that, we have been trained by it. You ever trained a vine to grow in a certain direction? As it grows, you keep tying it up and bending it. The Lord is training us. The Lord is saying, I love you enough, I'm not going to let you grow over there. But also as you come over and share my holiness, I'm letting you share my holiness so you can have the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Listen, if you're the one at work stirring up trouble, you don't have the peaceful fruit of righteousness. There's somewhere along the way the Lord has tried to correct you and you wouldn't listen to Him. If you're the one at home that is stirring up things, you don't have the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Somewhere along the way, along the, way the Lord has tried to correct you and you haven't listened to Him.
If you're the one at school, if you're the one in the community that you don't see righteousness abound in your life. There's not that peaceful fruit abounding in your life. Somewhere the Lord has tried to correct you and you haven't accepted his correction. Do you see that that is literally what Moses is talking about to the children of Israel? And he's saying, don't you understand how the generation before you was punished? You were supposed to learn humility because God wants to see the fruits of righteousness in your life. And so we read this last verse, verse 6, and the lesson is yours. We're back at Deuteronomy, the 8th chapter. I'd like for you to look at verse 6. This is where he concludes, or at least where we're going to conclude, and he, he kind of sums up the, the reasoning behind all this. In other words, the means was the discipline. The end, in other words, what was it to accomplish? It was to accomplish this in verse 6. Therefore, in other words, if you've learned from everything he said in verses 1 through 5, this is going to be the, the conclusion. Verse 6, therefore, you shall keep the commandments of the Lord, number one, your God. Number two, to walk in his ways. Number three, to fear him. You're going to keep commandments. Why do we keep commandments? Just so I can say I've done a check mark and I've kept commandments. No, we're keeping his commandments. Why? Because we don't want to be out in the world. What do we want to do? Look at the middle of that verse. We want to walk with him. We keep the commandments so that we have fellowship with God. If we don't keep the commandments, we have fellowship with the world. Don't you remember in 1 John 1 7 that we're taught that as long as we walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another. But we also have fellowship with Him. And the blood of His Son cleanses us. We keep the commandments so that we have fellowship with Him. But notice that last phrase in verse 6. In that, we fear Him. A great and awesome respect for God. A fear, genuine, genuine awe for God. Do you remember? Do you remember God? Does your life reflect that you remember God? Do you realize what we've lost if we have forgotten God? All of us here in this room from time to time have forgotten something. And sometimes it means you have to get a few miles away from the house and turn around and go back. Sometimes it may mean you've forgotten something and, and it's embarrassing and you have to go back and apologize. But friends, for just a moment, and as we're about to sing this song of invitation, I want you to think about what it's going to be like to stand on the day of judgment and it be true that you just simply forgot God. God, I knew you were there, and you know, I, I, just, I just seemed to not be able to remember you when I went home. I just seemed to not be able to remember you when I went to school. I just seemed to not be able to remember you when I got with my buddies or, or at work. Brethren, that's not the Lord being the king of our life. The king of our life is saying, Lord, I remember you in everything. And so tonight, let's go into this week and let's remember God so strongly that we see him in everything, even the trials. If we can help you in any way, take steps closer to God. If you're ready to be immersed into Christ or you're ready to come back home,